When I was in middle school, high school, I sort of rode the fence between fitting in and my teachers loving me because I was a pastor's son, and so there was sort of a reputation of do-goodness and morality, even though I was a, a really secretive sinner, okay? So I really rode the fence between being a cool kid and being a uh, goody-two-shoes, and the teachers loving me. And I did a good job of it. The teachers did love me, and I mean, who wouldn't, right? But the teachers did love me. I'm kidding, because you're about to see. Uh, the teachers loved me, but I also was secretive about my, my misbehavior, if you want to put it that way, sneaky misbehavior. One of my teachers, I had an anatomy class when I was a senior in high school. Uh, her name was Miss Sanford. Um, she was always, she was my lunch period, and she was always late coming back from lunch, and so uh, all the students would get in there, and then she would come after everybody, like five minutes after we all showed up. So one day we showed up to class, and uh, it was clear because the overhead was out in the middle of the room that we had a pop quiz that day, and uh, we had five minutes without the teacher with the quiz on the overhead. You see where this is going? The answers were also on the overhead. Now you see where this is going, right? So uh, me and my two best friends had that class together, which that was a recipe for disaster already. But we had that class together, and their names are Kenny and Jordy. I'm going to tell them. You guys, I'm going to tell them to watch this so that they can hear me say this. Because I have a telling that's different from their telling, but it's the truth, okay? Um, so we're in anatomy class. Before it starts, teacher hasn't showed up yet, and uh, we see that there's an opportunity, right? A terrible opportunity, and yet an opportunity. And so Kenny, uh, who is the most lovable one of the bunch, goes up to the overhead and and starts reading off the answers to us so that Jordy and I can write them down, then share them with Kenny who sat beside me, and so we were cheating, okay? Uh, and so uh, he read them off, and then we wrote down the answers. Uh, Miss Sanford eventually came back into the classroom. All of us were finally seated, and it was all done, and uh, we took the quiz, and believe it or not, did pretty well on it. Uh, did really well on the, t on the quiz. I think maybe threw, threw one wrong answer in there just to throw off the curve, you know, make sure nothing, because none of us got 100 anyway. So uh, anyway, it was all good, right? But then the end of the class came up, and there was always time at the end of the class that she was done with the lecture and everything, and so kids would, like, play cards in class and just talk and all kinds of stuff. So that time came, and then Miss Sanford says, hey, Kenny, Jordy, and Caleb, can you all come here for a second? Oh, I know, right? So we get up there, and uh, she says, hey, um, Sadie told me that you guys uh, looked at the answers to the quiz and, and cheated on the quiz. Is that, uh, is that true? And we were all kind of, you know, you could see the gears turning in all of our heads. I looked at them. I was like, no. No, it's, we didn't do that. Um, and we all just doubled down on that. Sadie said that? Well, she doesn't have proof of that. Why, why would, it's just our word against hers. It's kind of weird thinking like, no, we didn't do that because we knew that. She didn't have a camera phone or anything. She didn't take pictures. So I was like, no, we didn't do anything like that. And Miss Sanford says, guys, come on. Did you cheat on the quiz? And we're like, no. No, we, we really didn't. So uh, that was that. And we got that grade. And she obviously was disappointed in us. But that kind of went on. And so uh, that was the end of it. And then, um, again, no proof. Our word against hers. We denied it and denied it. Denied it. It was over with. I was 17 at the time. I became a follower of Jesus when I was 15. I graduated that year. That was my senior year. Went to college, and the Lord sort of worked on my heart when I was in college. Freshman, mainly sophomore year, though, uh, and I remember specifically thinking of ways that I needed to make, make following Jesus a priority, and I didn't go back and write every wrong that I ever did, but there was this one burden that I couldn't shake, and it was cheating on that quiz. I knew that she wasn't a believer, and I knew that I had stained what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus to this unbelieving woman. I think that's why the burden was so heavy, and so I just felt like God was just telling me, you, you got to go and make that one right. You got to go make that one right, got to, and so 
this is really weird, but like I went back and visited my parents every weekend um, just to go to church and have a free meal and get my laundry done. Um, so that time that I went home, I went home one day early on a Friday. I drove up to the school and I knew the ladies in the office. I told you I was really lovable to the people in there. So I just told them, I was like, can I go visit Miss Sanford? And they're like, sure. So I walked down the hallway, go to her room, knock on the door. She answers the door and she's like, what in the world? We weren't even really close. Why are you here? And I said, can I talk to you for a second? She steps outside and I just told her everything. I was like, hey, do you remember that time that we had that quiz and you were like, you cheated and we were like, no, we didn't. And you were like, yeah, you did. And I said, no, we didn't. You have no proof. Um, we did. And I just told her, I was like, we did that, and, um, and I'm sorry. I was like, I haven't talked to Kenny and Jordy about this, but I just wanted you to know that, that I could not live with that, and that a follower of Jesus is not supposed to do that and lie to you, and so I'm just sorry. She laughed, and she was like, it doesn't matter, <laughs> who cares? And so it was low risk, low cost, right? Now, listen, that was really uncomfortable for me, very uncomfortable for me, a lot of anxiety about that, very shameful and embarrassing, but she laughed it off. She even said, I knew it, which obviously she did. But listen, the reason I say that is the cost of making that decision and making that right was so low. I didn't go back and get a retroactive zero and fail the class. There was no risk, right? The, literally the only risk that came along with that was my ego taking a little tiny hit to a woman that I probably will never see again. And I haven't seen her since that conversation. A very, very low risk moment. It would have been a higher risk moment if I would have in the classroom that day said, you're right, we cheated, give us the consequences, right? That's a higher risk moment versus a low risk moment. Now listen, the reason I say that is whether great or small, obedience and following Jesus, obedience comes at a cost. And the cost is living a life buried with Christ. Burying sinful tendencies, burying sinful behaviors, whatever it may look like, prone to wonder, in other words. We have to bury those sinful tendencies. Obedience looks like being willing to bury the inclination to do things like think, speak, or live in a way that looks out for yours truly, and instead seek to live in newness of life for the glory of God, even if it costs comfort, reputation, time, money, whatever it may be. Obedience costs, and yet the reward is greater than the cost. The reason I open with that this morning is because we're going to see in our passage this morning a situation with two very sinful men who counted the cost and decided to boldly follow because the cross impacted their souls. They decided that Jesus is worth living the buried life for. And so I'm going to say that that's our, our aim as well this morning, is to see what it looks like to live the buried life and what the cost may be. Let's look at it together in John 19. John 19, starting in verse 38, 38 through 42, it says this, after these things, this is after Jesus has died, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but listen, secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 70 pounds 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. 41. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. 
There's a couple things that we're going to look at as far as notes go later on, and we'll get there. But first, I want to just introduce to you what I would suggest to you is John's big theme. And listen, we could go to John 20 and look at verses 30 and 31 because that's actually what Jesus or what John is writing and saying, this is the reason I wrote this down. But I'm going to paraphrase what his theme is with something I'm going to show you on the screen behind me, and it's this. That Jesus is exactly who he claimed he was. He's exactly who he claimed he was. And specifically, we see that in two ways, that he was the Lamb of God, and he was the divine son of God. And you may even be able to replace the word divine with sovereign, meaning that he was ultimately in control. And we see lots of evidences of this, that Jesus is exactly who he claimed he was. You remember this whole theme of John is sort of this trial motif where he uses the word witness and testimony. And the reason why is to say, Jesus has been wrongfully accused, wrongfully murdered. And now I'm going to bring this book to the table and say, here's all the evidence why that slaying was wrong, why it was the wrong verdict, in other words. So the whole theme of John is saying he's exactly who he claimed to be, and he was wrongfully crucified. He is the Christ, in other words, the Lamb of God, the divine or sovereign Son of God. And we see a lot of examples of this, and we could go a long, long time talking about evidences of that very fact. But I'll give you just those that have happened in the last week in the timeline. Remember when Caiaphas, the high priest, said, it's better for one man to die for the nation. He's going to die for us. And really, he was speaking truer than he realized because not only was he saying he will die to preserve our position, our status as the Sanhedrin members. No, he was saying more truly than he realized that Jesus would die to save many. He would die instead of us dying. Again, the sovereign control of our Savior. Jesus also displays his sovereignty, his control over the matter as he predicts Judas's betrayal. He predicts Peter's denial. He fulfilled scripture, Psalms 22 and 69 specifically. Just in the last couple of weeks, we talked about it being fulfillments of his divided garments, his thirst having sour wine to drink, the Passover lamb's bones not broken from Exodus 12, our Savior being pierced, blood to its own, water of repentance coming out of his body as he's been pierced in the side, a fountain as we saw last week from Zechariah 12 and 13. And those are just a few very small examples of that reality behind me right there. That Jesus is the Lamb of God, He is the sovereign or divine Son of God, and that he is ultimately in control of all of these situations. Jesus is not the one being disarmed. Sin is, because he is in control. And that's John's theme, to show us that he's exactly who he said he was. But we also see that big theme play out as it impacted the people who witnessed his death. I'm going to talk about a couple of them, and then we'll look at the one in our passage. Again, this theme behind me, we see it as it's impacting the people that are witnessing what's happening. Other gospel authors talk about the impact of the death of Jesus on individuals. For example, the criminal next to him. Remember when the criminal next to him, is one of them is mocking him, and the other one says, bro, we we deserve to be here. He don't. He's the innocent one. And then what does he say? He looks to Jesus and says, Jesus, today when you enter your kingdom, remember me. You talk about a statement of faith from a man that witnessed the death of our Jesus, the Christ. He's exactly who he said he is. Jesus, you're exactly who you say you are. Remember me. When you go into your kingdom, and Jesus says that classic line, right? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Because he's exactly who he said he was. But not just a criminal who is, by the way, a godless social outcast from the outside looking in. But also it happened not just from the outcasts in Luke 23, but also the Gentiles. It happened with a Roman guard, right? The Roman guard looking on. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us, truly this man, what? Was the son of God. Truly he was the son of God. In other words, he's exactly who he said he was, and this one was a mistake. We see not only did it impact 
the godless social outcast being the criminal on the cross. It also impacted the non-Jewish Gentile soldier who was crucifying him. But today, we've seen Jesus reach the hearts of social outcasts and Gentiles, but there's one group that he had not reached, those who resented, accused, and even now had primarily been responsible for killing him, and those were the Jewish leaders, the religious elite, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin. These were the guys that were ultimately culpable and responsible for this slaying, and they'd always been enemies of Jesus. You see, the gospel transforms not one group of people, not just two groups of people, but any and everyone who humbly comes to saving faith in Christ and Him crucified. And we're going to see it today in the religious leaders, the elites. As we examine these these two guys' roles in Jesus' burial, we can find a couple of life-changing principles, I think. I'm going to give those to you now. Number one is to bury secret faith. To bury secret faith. You'll notice I put that sort of in quotations because it's not real. Secret faith simply cannot do. It won't do because it's not real. There's no such thing as secret faith if it's secret, if it's hidden. In short, what happens next is that the two guys, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, are going to bury Jesus' body. They're going to put fragrant spices in the tomb to hide the stench of dried blood and rotting flesh. Jesus was mangled and beaten torn to pieces and they're going to go in there and adorn his body but as is so often the case with john's gospel the value of this passage i'm going to suggest to you lies in the details so let's examine these two guys what they do and how we can learn from this moment that john has communicated to us look at john 38 we're going to walk through this together After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, his peers, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. John provides some important details about Joseph, but so do the other gospel authors. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke provide some details about this guy, Joseph of Arimathea. For one thing, this is not Joseph as in the father of Jesus, as Mary's husband. That's not the Joseph we're talking about here. Matthew and Luke talk about Joseph of Arimathea being a wealthy man. They mention that he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, that word I mentioned a moment ago, the Sanhedrin. Think of it as like a Jewish supreme court that makes rulings based on their law. They had to know the law, this book, the Old Testament, they had to know the law in order to make rulings. Just like our supreme court, they're not making new rules, new laws, they're not supposed to. They're making rulings on an already existing law. And that was the role of the Sanhedrin. Now to do that, they really had to know this stuff. I mean, like, memorize large chunks, if not all of this stuff. And so these guys really understood their Torah, their Old Testament. For sure they understood it. The ones responsible for sending Jesus to Pilate for crucifixion, it says that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of that body. It says that he was a disciple secretly, John tells us. And because of what we saw just happen to Jesus and the scattering of his followers, it's no surprise as to why he was a secret disciple of Jesus. You see, under Roman law, the bodies of executed criminals were handed over to next of kin. But not in the case of enemies of the state, insurrectionists, which is exactly what Jesus was 
being called, considering he called himself the king of the Jews. You remember that? If he's going to be king, then that means he's an opponent of Caesar, which means he's an insurrectionist. And so they were not given to the next of kin. Now what happened to insurrectionists is they were left for the vultures or they were dumped in a mass grave, a big heap of criminals. In other words, family didn't want them. Jewish family didn't want them because they died on a cross, a cursed person, brought shame on their families. They weren't honored, in other words. So Joseph probably used his rank as a member of the Sanhedrin to gain access to Pilate and thus gain access to the body of this perceived blaspheming criminal. But Joseph wasn't the only one. Look at verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, that's from John 3, we'll talk about that in a second, who also had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. If you do the conversion from their time to ours, it's about 65 pounds as we would understand it today. John contrasts two events in Nicodemus's life. This event right here, we see it from Nicodemus, but also in John 3, which I mentioned just a moment ago. John mentions it because he says he's the one who came to Jesus by night. In other words, in the, uh, the darkness of night, so that he wouldn't be seen by the public. They wouldn't see that this guy was coming to this guy. At night, he came. You know it better than you realize because it's John where we get John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That conversation was being had in the context of Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus. It began when Nicodemus, again, also a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee, a ruler of the people, he approached Jesus at night so as to not be seen by others. And we saw in John chapter 3, weeks and weeks and months ago, sincere questioning. Remember he said, you're a rabbi from God, which he's not jerking his chain. He's saying, clearly you know your stuff. Clearly God sent you because you know so much. You're such a good teacher, Nicodemus said to him at night. Rabbi, so clear that you come from God. He then asked him a very sincere question in John 3. He says, how does someone see the kingdom of God? What do you think it means to, to go and see the kingdom of God, be part of God's kingdom? And Jesus' response gave him a lot of things, but the main thing was that someone must be born again. Very confusing to someone that took that literally. We may see it with a little more clear eyes than that, but Jesus' point was someone has to be saved from their sin. He then uses an analogy, an illustration. Remember he talks about, from Numbers chapter 21, this story of uh, serpents that have been released by God as for judgment on God's people who have been sinners, right? And so in Numbers chapter 21, God's punishment to his people is he releases fiery sort of bronze-colored serpents, and they start biting the Israelites, and people are dying. God's judgment on them because they had taken up idol idols, idolatry. And so what happens in John Numbers 21 is that God tells Moses, Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go and make another sort of fiery bronze serpent, an actual bronze serpent. You're going to go up on that hill. You lift it up. Anybody who looks at that serpent, the venom that's coursing through their veins will be removed, and they will be healed. So Jesus says the same way to Nicodemus, the same way that that bronze serpent was lifted up on that hill and people looked to the bronze serpent, they were healed of the venom coursing through their veins, the death, what's going to happen is, I'm going to be lifted up on a hill, and anybody that looks at me, he's saying, will have life. And what we know is the venom coursing through people's veins was not from a snake, but it was from sin. And Jesus' point is, I'm going to be put up on a tree. I'm going to be lifted up on a hill. Anybody that looks at me, they can be cured of the death coursing through their veins. Now, he told that to Nicodemus, a guy that would know that story, right? And it didn't really click. We give no indication that it clicked to him then more of confusion. 
But now his story changes. And it's very important that we look, look at John 3 to have context as to what's happening today. His story changes. And it seems that maybe perhaps Calvary made the earlier encounter click. Hey, didn't Jesus just say this is going to happen? He's going to be lifted up on a hill? And he's seeing it happen right in front of his eyes. And so what happens is, after he dies, they bring this expensive powdered myrrh. They use it to put a pleasing fragrance in that tomb. And it makes you wonder, what does it mean for Nicodemus to then, as a result of this, align himself with Jesus? Is this faith? Is he a believer? I'm going to suggest to you that all signs point to yes. Because this wasn't just some common courtesy for the dead. It was a bold stance. Look at verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus... Notice this terminology. They bound it in linen cloths with spices. Here it is. As is the burial custom of the Jews. Now that may not seem like a lot to say, but remember what I said about people that were crucified when they died just a minute ago. That's not what happens to Jesus' body. He's not left for the vultures, and he's not thrown in a mass grave. He's given a burial custom of the Jews. This is someone who had just now culturally become seen as disowned he's an enemy of rome because of insurrection supposed he's an outcast of the jews because he's been declared by the sanhedrin a blasphemer of god cursed shamed in the death on a cross you see people who died this way did not receive burials of honor they were left for the vultures or again a mass grave the jews would say he's ashamed he's cursed let him rot you see, shame culture is hard for us to wrap our minds around. It still exists, by the way, in the Middle East. But shame culture is hard for us to wrap our minds around. Think of it this way. Today, if, if there was the worst criminal that you could imagine, or maybe just not even the worst criminal that you could imagine, but someone that was given the death penalty, they were given lethal injection. And so someone's given lethal injection after living a life as a serial killer or a pedophile or something along those lines. Then someone goes to their funeral and speaks highly of them at their expensive, life-honoring funeral like they were a great individual who, who deserves honor and respect. You would look at that, and you wouldn't think that, that was okay, would you? You look at that and say, this is wrong. There's something wrong with this situation because culturally, this is inappropriate. This wasn't a good guy. That's how inappropriate what they were doing with Jesus' body was. People looked at that and they said, what are those guys doing aligning themselves with such a nasty person? And it would have waves in their social lives, in their professional lives. Now, obviously, Jesus was not truly a guilty man, but at this point, it didn't matter. He died a curse of death, shamed by the culture. But instead of being, you know, instead of a, a cursed, rotting corpse, these two who, for all intents and purposes, I'm going to say knew better, they buried Jesus as a wealthy man of honor. And this is why I say that. For Jesus, or rather for Joseph and for Nicodemus to take on preparation and burial of this man in the daylight in front of crucifixion witnesses would doubtless mean that they would themselves be treated as outcasts by their peers, the Sanhedrin and others. Listen, for two members of the governing body whose job it was to know and live by the law, they knew that what Jesus had become, and they knew the cost of aligning themselves with him in his burial. Joseph, a secret disciple who wouldn't walk with Jesus publicly because the cost would mean sacrificing his status, his relationships. Nicodemus, an unbeliever, afraid to take the leap of faith because the cost would alter his status, his relationships his conversations, what have you. This is very important. You see, the imprisonment of their faith, 
was the fear, was the fear of their peers. The longing of the acceptance of people was trumping what they knew was right that would bring them acceptance with God. And so what we see in our passage is that these men seemingly take giant leaps of faith, aligning themselves to Jesus in the light of the day. day. They weren't just burying a body. They were burying secret faith. And this has a lot of relevancy to us, church. Secret faith, so-called, again, it's, it's not really a thing, but this secret faith where we bury any sort of public persona or declaration of belonging to Jesus, any boldness at all, secret faith was just as destructive then as it is today because it's no faith at all. It made Joseph's walk with Jesus invisible. It made Nicodemus's salvation impossible until it was destroyed. The principle is this, that convenient secret faith will not do. If I were to go and take a poll of every person in this room and I said, do you want to be nearer to Jesus? Likely, most, if not all of you would say, of course, sure, I want to be nearer to Jesus. And you wouldn't be wrong to say so. So listen, learn from the men who walked before you. The path of faithfulness is paved by willingness to lose what is temporal in order to gain what is eternal. The path of faithfulness is paved by willingness to lose what is temporal that you may gain what is eternal. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 17, and 18 means when it says this. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So how do we apply that? It's very simple. Stop caring so much about what others or even yourself think. Live for an audience of one. Fear of man and selfish living have to go. Walking with Jesus will mean that you may not be the trendy dresser. It will mean that you aren't the popular kid. It will mean that you honor God's design for sex, not the culture's design for sex. It will mean that you don't participate in the neighborhood or workplace gossip. It will mean that your bottom dollar may decrease, that the kingdom of God may increase. It will mean that you give up comfortability in favor of an uncomfortable but necessary and blessing of a conversation with perhaps a lost coworker or classmate or perhaps your spouse in a hard conversation that you know is a necessary conversation or maybe discipling your children and stepping out of your comfort zone to say, this is what needs to happen. I need to take off my comfortability cap and put on the uncomfortable because it's what is best for them. It will mean that your Sundays belong to God, not to sleep and to sports. It will mean that you seek reconciliation with that person who has wronged you because you love Jesus more than you love your ego. You want to be nearer to Jesus. The path of faithfulness is paved by willingness to lose what is temporal, that you may gain what is eternal. There's a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott. Some of you guys know his story. He was killed, martyred by a people group that he tried to reach with the gospel. He has a wonderful quote that I think pertains to what we're talking about this morning. And it's this. Again, a man who was killed for the faith says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool 
who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And look, if you hear that long list of things, ways that it'll, it will cost to follow Jesus, we can answer the question and say we want to be near him, right? But if you hear all those things, we brush them to the side, we quench the Spirit of God, then just be real and admit that you don't really want to be nearer to Jesus. If that's the cost, and you're unwilling to, to pay the cost, then don't pretend. Just admit the facts are we actually don't care about being closer to Jesus. We're good with the get-out-of-hell-free card, and I want to live my life the way I want to live it. God knows your heart, and he knows when you're giving him the runaround and playing church that you can get out scot-free at the end of the day. Secret faith will not do because it's not real. Faith costs. Don't settle for convenient secret faith put it this way, it's a fool who proclaims his thirst and never drinks. It's a fool who proclaims his thirst. We can say in this room that we want this, but if you never grab the glass and take a sip, what does it really say? Wordplay is what it says. Very secret faith. And I'm not saying that's easy. <laughs> we will fail at that. I will fail at that. Every day of my life will fail at that. Not seizing the opportunity to be obedient and stick my neck out if it means me being uncomfortable or me taking an L if it means for the kingdom of God pursuing Jesus. We will fail at that. And that's why the next thing that we're about to talk about is so vital. We got good news, church. The second thing is to be buried with him, to live alongside him. To be buried with him, to live alongside him. This is one of those moments in John that just, I feel like a kid in a candy store because of the beauty that we see in this book. We've seen some beauty in this book, haven't we, church? If you've paid attention, we have, man. There's just some, some neat treasures to be beheld, and we're about to see one of them, I think, and this is really special. You see, we identify with the flawed men in verses 38 through 40, but we rest alongside them in the Savior that they bury who will not stay in the tomb. We know what's coming, right? Sunday is coming. We cannot lose sight of the big picture of this moment that Jesus has proclaimed it is finished and that we're in good company. When we talk about secret faith, we're in good company because the guys that are burying Jesus, displaying faith, or now putting it on the line, they live for a long time not willing to put it on the line, but Jesus saves, church. Look at verses 41 and 42. Now, in the place where he was crucified, listen to this, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. He was buried there for convenience. It's the day before the Sabbath, and really it's nearing the end of the day, sort of reaching the afternoon and the evening. Whenever the sun went down, it was considered the Sabbath, and so they had to scramble quickly and find a place to bury Jesus. They couldn't carry the body and spices on the Sabbath, and so this garden tomb that was right beside Golgotha or Calvary was a good location. Show them that map real quick. Just to remind you that this is not um, far from the city. You'll see kind of all these last steps we've talked about for the last few weeks. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all sort of were really close to the city. Two and three were the only ones that were sort of on the outskirts of the city at the Garden of Gethsemane in that Kidron Valley over there on the top side. And then now we've reached number nine, which is uh, right there, Golgotha. It's the name of the skull, same for the name Calvary, right? It's the place where Jesus was crucified. The reason I point that out is to show you just how close it is to the city. It's right there, okay? It is right outside of the city walls. And right next to that, I don't know if you can read that, right below that number nine, it says Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Now listen, 
That's an approximation of where that tomb would be. But we know that it was very close because they didn't have much time to get it from point A to point B. And it says it was carved out of a mountain, which this tomb was, um, which Calvary was a mountain. And so we know that it was rocky and hilly. And so we're really close to where Jesus has been crucified. You can take that down. Again, it calls it a tomb, which it means that it was cut out of stone structure like a small mountain. And if you go to Israel, to Jerusalem today, you'll see where they believe Jesus' body was buried, which... I don't know if it's very reliable, but you'll see a location where they will see, and you can look at it, and you don't think you can go in, but you can look at it and see. It's sort of this, this wall structure, which is what you see on the pictures of the stone being rolled in front. It's just a, a wall of the side of a mountain, and it's carved out a tomb. It also says an interesting detail that I'm going to suggest to you is very, very John-like to include, and that is that it says that there was a garden. It was a garden tomb. A garden was nearby. Now that word garden, we think of like uh, your little rock garden and you got some, uh, some lilies planted in front of your house. That's not what we're looking at here. The word garden is literally a big orchard or a plantation. This is a large space where it would need a professional gardener to tend this space, an orchard or perhaps a plantation. But I'm gonna suggest to you that there's more going on here than just that John wants us to know geographically where Jesus was temporarily, temporarily buried. John's like that. He doesn't share his details unless there's some reason why he's sharing them. I wonder if these two men, who knew their book of Genesis very well, by the way, saw the irony of burying Jesus in a garden, another beautiful orchard where a horrible death took place in the book of Genesis. In the garden called Eden, our first ancestors were told that they were surely dead in their sin. It was, in other words, the genesis of death. And now, in a garden tomb, we are told that Jesus became sin that we may have life. Not the genesis of death, but the genesis of new life. Don't you see this, church? In the garden, God pronounced a curse of death as the wages of sin, but he also promised a suffering servant in Genesis chapter 3 who would be bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Genesis 3 tells us that by his death and burial, he would purchase you peace, that he would crush the enemy, that while he would receive a horrible blow, that he would crush death itself. He would crush the head of the serpent. You see, listen, the curse of death began in the garden, but the curse was buried in the garden. Where Jesus was put in that tomb, your old dead life was buried in there with them. Praise God. And if you have placed saving faith in Jesus, you have already been buried with him. And so today and now, live your new life alongside him. Live in him. That's what it means in Galatians 2.20 when it says, I have been crucified with Christ. Read buried. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, again, there is no room for secret faith at the foot of the cross. We are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life because our old life is buried. The death began in a garden and death was destroyed in a garden that we may have new life. You want to be nearer to Jesus. The path of faithfulness is paved by a willingness to lose what is temporal that you may gain what is eternal. And so many of us have become so good at living a faith that is Sunday only, that is 
risk-free, that is privatized, and even that is wrapped in consumerism, where you're here to get fed or to get your fill up, when in reality, your life is a pouring out, not a pouring in. And we can say that we should leave this place empty but full, right? But we live for the glory of God. He does not live for the glory of Caleb. We've been good at Sunday-only, risk-free, privatized faith. And so my instruction to you today, church, is to forget wordplay, forget lip service. Stop living like the former Joseph of Arimathea, ashamed of the Jesus who died for you, and rather admit humbly where your faith, mine and your faith, has been secret and, quite frankly, has been shameful. When Jesus has now been an afterthought for so long, and consider what it means today for the first time, perhaps, to bury convenient secret faith. Or maybe you're like the former Nicodemus, inquiring and curious, but the act of confession, surrender, giving your life to Jesus, making that public perhaps, maybe you're here today and you felt that burden for a long time, and it leaves you paralyzed unable to move and certainly unable to speak and make that public. And the reason why is because of the cost. That it leaves your ego vulnerable. What will my peers think about that? Am I ready for that? If that's you today, listen, we can talk about the cost, the daily cost, in this life of following Jesus, but I'm going to make you a promise. The eternal cost of not following Jesus far outweighs it. The good news is Jesus paid that cost. That's what Calvary's all about. That's why Jesus could proclaim, it is finished. He wasn't saying that I am finished. He wasn't saying it's the end of my life. He's saying it's the end of death. And so today, church, will you join me in examining yourself? What does it mean to bury secret faith? And perhaps you wondered in this room and you're not really sure what God would have you do. You've come to church a few times. You may know some Bible stories. But God has woken you up lately and given you a realization that you cannot play with. And that is that the wages of sin, the death, the separation from God, a holy God, is still on you. Because you've never come to a point in your life where you've said, God, I'm a sinner. Save me. I've got nothing. Save me from my sin. Guys, the only reason that you can pray that prayer and make that right with God and find eternal life is because Sunday's coming. And we don't have to wait to celebrate the resurrection. But God can escort you today from death into life.